0: Hey, I'm back with another science fiction short story. Today, we're going to read a short story by a famous, very famous author that probably anyone who's read any science fiction knows, and that would be Mr. Philip K. Dick. This story is called Mr. Spaceship. It was written in 1953 and released in one of those pulp Uh, science fiction magazines it was imagination stories of science and fantasy january 1953 apparently it cost 35 cents and i have a weird relationship with mr phil phil dick uh i've read um do androids dream of electric sheep and i've read a couple other short stories from this compendium i have and this guy oh and i also read um the nazi one uh the man uh, man in high castle or man on the high castle something like that he he's an interesting author like the the ideas are good the ideas are there and they're good and they're interesting and they're engaging he has the strangest way of writing multiple times in do androids dream of electric sheep which by the way is the book that blade runner if you didn't know is based on i would have to say loosely based on but multiple times throughout that book i remember just being like who who talks like this like this isn't intelligible this this doesn't resonate with my human side like this person people don't act like this and he's just kind of weird and you know what that's cool that's his thing he writes weird stories uh he he is he's more popular than i would think he should be i'll put it that way you go to a bookstore of the sci-fi section and there's just, i i actually know he was very prolific too so that might be another reason why but there's always like a huge phil phil k dick section um and i do you know i do plan on reading more more from him i just he, you know he's just not my favorite author But anyway, you know what? I saw this one uh, online. It is in the public domain, and I thought, you know what? A Philip K. Dick story in the public domain? Let's do it. And actually, another reason why I decided to turn this short story into an episode is because it has a specific feature that I wanted to really kind of try out, and that is dialogue. So this is kind of a dialogue-heavy story, and... (laughs) This could turn out bad, but I am going to try my hand at a couple of voices. So we'll see how that goes. You know, maybe this will be a one-time thing. Maybe I'll try it again and see if I can do it better. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, So here we go. Let's get to reading. Mr. Spaceship by Philip K. Dick, 1953. Kramer leaned back. You can see the situation. How can we deal with a factor like this? The perfect variable. Perfect? Prediction should still be possible. A living thing acts from necessity, the same as inanimate material. But the cause-effect chain is more subtle. There are more factors to be considered. The difference is quantitative, I think. The reaction of the living organism parallels natural causation, but with greater complexity. Gross and Kramer looked up at the board plates suspended on the wall, still dripping, the images hardening into place. Kramer traced a line with his pencil. See that? It's a pseudopodium. They're alive, and so far, a weapon we can't beat. No mechanical system can compete with that, simple or intricate. We'll have to scrap the Johnson control and find something else. Meanwhile, the war continues as it is. Stalemate. Checkmate. They can't get to us, and we can't get through their living minefield. Kramer nodded. It's a perfect defense for them, but there still might be one answer. What's that? Wait a minute. Kramer turned to his rocket expert, sitting with the charts and files. The heavy cruiser that returned this week, it didn't actually touch, did it? It came close, but there was no contact. Correct, the expert nodded. The mine was 20 miles off. The cruiser was in space drive, moving directly toward Proxima, straight line, using the Johnson Control, of course. It had deflected a quarter of an hour earlier, for reasons unknown. Later, it resumed its course. That was when they got it. It shifted, Kramer said, but not enough. The mine was coming along after it, trailing it. It's the same old story, but I wonder about the contact. Here's our theory, the expert said. We keep looking for contact, a trigger in the pseudopodium. But more likely, we're witnessing a psychological phenomena, a decision without any physical correlative. We're watching for something that isn't there. The mind decides to blow up. It sees our ship, approaches, and then decides. Thanks. Kramer turned to Gross. Well, that confirms what I'm saying. How can a ship guided by automatic relays, escape a mind that decides to explode. The whole theory of mind penetration is that you must avoid tripping the trigger. But here the trigger is a state of mind and a complicated, developed life form. The belt is 50,000 miles deep, Gross added. Solves another problem for them, repair and maintenance. The damn things reproduce, fill up the spaces by spawning into them. I wonder what they feed on. Probably the remains of our first line. The big cruisers must be a delicacy. It's a game of wits between a living creature and a ship piloted by automatic relays. The ship always loses. Kramer opened a folder. I'll tell you what I suggest. Go on, Gross said. I've already heard ten solutions today. What's yours? Mine is very simple. These creatures are superior to any mechanical system but only because they're alive. Almost any other life form could compete with them, any higher life form. If the Ukes can put out living minds to protect their planets, we ought to be able to harness some of our own life forms in a similar way. Let's make use of the same weapon ourselves. Which life form do you propose to use? I think a human brain is the most agile of known living forms. Do you know of any better? No. But no human being can withstand out space travel. A human pilot will be dead of heart failure long before the ship got anywhere near Proxima. But we don't need the whole body, Kramer said. We only need the brain. What? The problem is to find a person of high intelligence who would contribute, in the same manner that eyes and arms are volunteered. But a brain? Technically, it could be done. Brains have been transferred several times when body destruction made it necessary. Of course, to a spaceship, to a heavy outspace cruiser instead of an artificial body, that's new. The room was silent. It's quite an idea, Gross said slowly, his heavy, square face twisted. But even supposing it might work, the big question is whose brain? It was all very confusing, the reasons for the war, the nature of the enemy. The Yukone had been contacted on one of the outlying planets of Proxima Centauri. At the approach of the Terran ship, a host of dark, slim pencils had lifted abruptly and shot off into the distance. The first real encounter came between three of the Yuk pencils and a single exploration ship from Terra. No Terrans survived. After that, it was all-out war, with no holds barred. Both sides feverishly constructed defense rings around their systems. Of the two, the Yukone belt was the better. The ring around Proxima was a living ring, superior to anything Terra could throw against it. The standard equipment by which Terran ships were guided in outspace, the Johnson Control, was not adequate. Something more was needed. Automatic relays were not good enough. Not good at all, Kramer thought to himself as he stood looking down the hillside at the work that was going on below him. A warm wind blew along the hill, rustling the weeds in the grass. At the bottom, in the valley, the mechanics had almost finished. The last elements of the reflex system had been removed from the ship and crated up. All that was needed now was the new core, the new central key that would take the place of the mechanical system, a human brain, a brain of an intelligent, wary human being. But would the human being part with it? That was the problem. Kramer turned. Two people were approaching him along the road, a man and a woman. The man was gross, expressionless, heavy-set, walking with dignity. The woman was. He stared in surprise and growing annoyance. It was Dolores, his wife. Since they'd separated, he'd seen little of her. Kramer, Gross said. Look who I ran into. Come back down with us. We're going into the town. Hello, Phil, Dolores said. Well, aren't you glad to see me? He nodded. How have you been? You're looking fine. She was still pretty and slender in her uniform. The blue-gray of internal security, Gross's organization. Thanks, she smiled. You seem to be doing all right, too. Commander Gross tells me that you're responsible for this project. Operation Head, as they call it. Whose head have you decided on? That's the problem. Kramer lit a cigarette. This ship is to be equipped with a human brain instead of the Johnson system. We've constructed special draining baths for the brain, electronic relays to catch the impulses and magnify them, a continual feeding duct that supplies the living cells with everything they need. But, but we still haven't got the brain itself, Gross finished. They began to walk back toward the car. If we can get that, We'll be ready for the tests. Will the brain remain alive? Dolores asked. Is it actually going to live as part of the ship? It will live, but not conscious. Very little life is actually conscious. Animals, trees, insects are quick in their responses, but they aren't conscious. In this process of ours, the individual personality, the ego, will cease. We only need the responsibility, nothing more. Dolores shuddered. How terrible. In time of war, everything must be tried, Kramer said absently. If one life sacrificed will end the war, it's worth it. This ship might get through. A couple more like it, and there wouldn't be any more war. They got into the car. As they drove down the road, Gross said, Have you thought of anyone yet? Kramer shook his head. That's out of my line. What do you mean? I'm an engineer. It's not my department, but all this was your idea. My work ends here. Gross was staring at him oddly. Kramer shifted uneasily. Then who was supposed to do it? Gross said, I can have my organization prepare examinations of several kinds to determine fitness, that kind of thing. Listen, Phil Dolores said suddenly, what she turned toward him. I have an idea. Do you remember that professor we had in college, Michael Thomas? Kramer nodded. I wonder if he's still alive, Dolores frowned. If he is, he must be awfully old. Why, Dolores? Gross asked. Perhaps an old person who didn't have much time left, but whose mind was still clear and sharp. Professor Thomas. Kramer rubbed his jaw. He certainly was a wise old duck. But could he still be alive? He must have been 70 then. We could find that out, Gross said. I could make a routine check. What do you think, Dolores said. If any human mind could outwit those creatures. I don't like the idea, Kramer said. In his mind, an image had appeared. The image of an old man sitting behind a desk. His bright, gentle eyes moving about the classroom. The old man leaning forward, a thin hand raised. Keep him out of this, Kramer said. What's wrong? Gross looked at him curiously. It's because I suggested it, Dolores said. No, Kramer shook his head. It's not that. I didn't expect anything like this. Somebody I knew. A man I studied under. I remember him very clearly. He was a very distinct personality. Good, Gross said. He sounds fine. We can't do it. We're asking his death. This is war. Gross said, and war doesn't wait on the needs of an individual. You said that yourself. Surely he'll volunteer. We can keep it on that basis. He may already be dead, Dolores mumbled. We'll find that out, Gross said, speeding up the car. They drove the rest of the way in silence. For a long time, the two of them stood studying the small wood house, overgrown with ivy, set back on the lot behind an enormous oak. The little town was silent and sleepy. Once in a while, a car moved slowly along the distant highway. But that was all. This is the place, Gross said to Kramer. He folded his arms. Quite a quaint little house. Kramer said nothing. The two security agents behind them were expressionless. Gross started toward the gate. Let's go. According to the check, he's still alive, but very sick. His mind is agile, however. That seems to be certain. It's said he doesn't leave the house. A woman takes care of his needs. He's very frail. They went down to the stone walk and up onto the porch. Gross rang the bell. They waited. After a time, they heard slow footsteps. The door opened. An elderly woman in a shapeless wrapper studied them impassively. Security, Gross said, showing his card. We wish to see Professor Thomas. Why? Government business. He glanced at Kramer. Kramer stepped forward. I was a pupil of the professors, he said. I'm sure he won't mind seeing us. The woman hesitated uncertainly. Gross stepped into the doorway. All right, mother, this is war time. We can't stand out here. The two security agents followed him, and Kramer came reluctantly behind, closing the door. Gross stalked down the hall until he came to an open door. He stopped, looking in. Kramer could see the white corner of a bed, a wooden post, and the edge of a dresser. He joined Gross. In the dark room, a withered old man lay, propped up on endless pillows. At first, it seemed as if he were asleep. There was no motion or sign of life. But after a time, Kramer saw with a faint shock that the old man was watching them intently, his eyes fixed on them, unmoving, unwinking. "'Professor Thomas!' Gross said. I'm Commander Gross of Security. This man with me is perhaps known to you. The faded eyes fixed on Kramer. I know him, Philip Kramer. You've grown heavier, boy. The voice was feeble, the rustle of dry ashes. Is it true you're married now? Yes, I married Dolores Finch. You remember her. Kramer came toward the bed, but we're separated. It didn't work out very well. Our careers. What we came here about, Professor, Gross began, but Kramer cut him off with an impatient wave. Let me talk. Can't you and your men get out of here long enough to let me talk to him? Gross swallowed. All right, Kramer, he nodded to the two men. The three of them left the room, going out into the hall and closing the door after them. The old man in the bed watched Kramer silently. I don't think much of him, he said at last. I've seen his type before. What's he want? Nothing. He just came along. Can I sit down? Kramer found a stiff, upright chair beside the bed. If I'm bothering you. No, I'm glad to see you again, Philip. After so long. I'm sorry your marriage didn't work out. How have you been? I've been very ill. I'm afraid that my moment on the world stage has almost ended. The ancient eyes studied the younger man reflectively. You look as if you've been doing well. Like everyone else, I thought highly of you. You've gone to the top in this society. Kramer smiled. Then he became serious. Professor, there's a project we're working on that I want to talk to you about. It's the first ray of hope we've had in this whole war. If it works, we may be able to crack the Uke defenses, get some ships into their system. If we can do that, the war might be brought to an end. Go on. Tell me about it. If you wish. It's a long shot, this project. It may not work at all, but we have to give it a try. It's obvious you came here because of it, Professor Thomas murmured. I'm becoming curious. Go on. After Kramer finished, the old man lay back in bed without speaking. At last he sighed. I understand. A human mind taken out of a human body. He sat up, looking at Kramer. I suppose you're thinking of me. Kramer said nothing. Before I make my decision, I want to see the papers on this. The theory and outline of construction. I'm not sure I like it. For reasons of my own, I mean. But I want to look at the material. If you'll do that. Certainly. Kramer stood up and went to the door. Gross and the two security agents were standing outside, waiting tensely. Gross, come inside. They filed into the room. Give the professor the papers, Kramer said. He wants to study them before deciding. Gross brought the file out of his coat pocket, a manila envelope. He handed it to the old man on the bed. Here it is, Professor. You're welcome to examine it. Will you give us your answer as soon as possible? We're very anxious to begin, of course. I'll give you my answer when I've decided. He took the envelope with a thin, trembling hand. My decision depends on what I find out from these papers. If I don't like what I find then I will not become involved with this work in any shape or form. He opened the envelope with shaking hands. I'm looking for one thing. What is it? Gross said. That's my affair. Leave me a number by which I can reach you when I've decided. Silently, Gross put his card down on the dresser. As they went out, Professor Thomas was already reading the first of the papers, the outline of the theory. Kramer sat across from Dale Winter, his second in line. Well, what then? Winter said. He's going to contact us. Kramer scratched with a drawing pen on some paper. I don't know what to think. Well, what do you mean? Winter's good-natured face was puzzled. Look, Kramer stood up pacing back and forth, his hands in his uniform pockets. He was my teacher in college. I respected him as a man, as well as a teacher. He was more than a voice, a talking book. He was a person, a calm, kindly person I could look up to. I always wanted to be like him someday. Now look at me. So? Look at what I'm asking. I'm asking for his life, as if he were some kind of laboratory animal kept around in a cage, not a man. A teacher at all. Do you think he'll do it? I don't know. Kramer went to the window. He stood looking out. In a way, I hope not. But if he doesn't, then we'll have to find somebody else. I know. There would be somebody else. Why did Dolores have to... The vid phone ring. Kramer pressed the button. This is gross. The heavy features formed. The old man called me. Professor Thomas. What did he say? He knew. He could tell already, by the sound of Gross's voice. "'He said he'd do it. I was a little surprised myself, but apparently he means it. We've already made arrangements for his admission to the hospital. His lawyer is drawing up the statement of liability.' Kramer only heard half. He nodded wearily. "'All right. I'm glad. I suppose we can go ahead, then.' "'You don't sound very glad.' I wonder why he decided to go ahead with it. He was very certain about it. Gross sounded pleased. He called me quite early. I was still in bed. You know, this calls for a celebration. Sure, Kramer said. It sure does. Toward the middle of August, the project neared completion. They stood outside in the hot autumn heat, looking up at the sleek metal sides of the ship. Gross thumped the metal with his hand. Well, it won't be long. We can begin the test anytime. Tell us more about this, an officer in a gold braid said. It's such an unusual concept. Is there really a human brain inside the ship? A dignitary asked, a small man in a rumpled suit. And the brain is actually alive? Gentlemen, this ship is guided by a living brain instead of the usual Johnson Relay control system. But the brain is not conscious. It will function by reflex only. The practical difference between it and the Johnson system is this. A human brain is far more intricate than any man-made structure, and its ability to adapt itself to a situation, to respond to danger, is far beyond anything that could be artificially built. Gross paused, cocking his ear. The turbines of the ship were beginning to rumble shaking the ground under them with a deep vibration. Kramer was standing a short distance away from the others, his arms folded, watching silently. At the sound of the turbines, he walked quickly around the ship to the other side. A few workmen were clearing away the last of the waste, the scraps of wiring and scaffolding. They glanced up at him and went on hurriedly with their work. Kramer mounted the ramp and entered the control cabin of the ship. Winter was sitting at the controls with a pilot from space transport. How's it look? Kramer asked. All right. Winter got up. He tells me it will be best to take off manually. The robot controls, Winter hesitated. I mean, the built-in controls can take over later on in space. That's right, the pilot said. It's customary with the Johnson system, and so in this case we should... Can you tell anything yet? Kramer asked. No, the pilot said slowly. I don't think so. I've been going over everything. It seems to be in good order. There's only one thing I wanted to ask you about. He put his hand on the control board. There are some changes here I don't understand. Changes? Alterations from the original design. I wonder what the purpose is. Kramer took the set of plans from his coat. Let me look. He turned the pages over. The pilot watched carefully over his shoulder. The changes aren't indicated on your copy, the pilot said. I wonder... He stopped. Commander Gross had entered the control cabin. Gross, who authorized alterations? Kramer said. Some of the wiring has been changed. Why, your old friend... Gross signaled to the field tower through the window. My old friend? The professor. He took quite an active interest. Gross turned to the pilot. Let's get going. We have to take this out past gravity for the test, they tell me. Well, perhaps it's for the best are you ready? Sure. The pilot sat down and moved some of the controls around. Anytime. Go ahead then, Gross said. The professor, Kramer began. But at that moment, there was a tremendous roar and the ship leaped under them. He grasped one of the wall holds and hung on as best he could. The cabin was filling with a steady throbbing, the raging of the jet turbines underneath them. The ship leaped. Kramer closed his eyes and held his breath. They were moving out into space, gaining speed each moment. "'Well, what do you think?' Winter said nervously. "'Is it time yet?' "'A little longer,' Kramer said. He was sitting on the floor of the cabin, down by the control wiring. He had removed the metal covering plate, exposing the complicated maze of relay wiring. He was studying it, comparing it to the wiring diagrams. "'What's the matter?' Gross said. "'These changes—' I can't figure out what they're for. The only pattern I can make out is that for some reason... Let me take a look, the pilot said. He squatted down beside Kramer. You were saying? See this lead here? Originally, it was switch-controlled. It closed and opened automatically, according to the temperature change. Now it's wired so that the central control system operates it. The same as with the others. A lot of this was still mechanical, worked by pressure, temperature, stress... Now it's under the central master. The brain? Gross said. You mean it's been altered so that the brain manipulates it? Kramer nodded. Maybe Professor Thomas felt that no mechanical relays could be trusted. Maybe he thought that things would be happening too fast, but some of these could close in a split second. The brake rockets could go on as quickly as... Hey, Winter said from the control seat. We're getting near the moon stations. What'll I do? They looked out the port. The corroded surface of the moon gleamed up at them, a corrupt and sickening sight. They were moving swiftly toward it. I'll take it, the pilot said. He eased Winter out of the way and strapped himself in place. The ship began to move away from the moon as he manipulated the controls. Down below them, they could see the observation stations dotting the surface and the tiny squares that were the openings of the underground factories and hangars. A red blinker winked up at them and the pilot's fingers moved on the board in answer. We're past the moon, the pilot said, after a time. The moon had fallen behind them. The ship was heading into outer space. Well, we can go ahead with it. Kramer did not answer. Mr. Kramer, we can go ahead any time. Kramer started. Sorry, I was thinking. All right, thanks. He frowned, deep in thought. What is it? Gross asked. The wiring changes. Did you understand the reason for them when you gave the okay to these workmen? Gross flushed. You know I know nothing about technical material. I'm in security. Then you should have consulted me. What does it matter? Gross grinned wryly. We are going to have to stop putting our faith in the old man sooner or later. The pilot stepped back from the board. His face was pale and set. Well, it's done, he said. That's it. What's done? Kramer said. We're on automatic. The brain. I turned the board over to it. To him, I mean. The old man. The pilot lit a cigarette and puffed nervously. Let's keep our fingers crossed. The ship was coasting evenly in the hands of its invisible pilot. Far down inside the ship, carefully armored and protected, a soft human brain lay in a tank of liquid a thousand minute electric charges playing over its surface. As the charges rose, they were picked up and amplified, fed into relay systems, advanced, carried on throughout the entire ship. Gross wiped his forehead nervously. So he is running it now. I hope he knows what he's doing. Kramer nodded enigmatically. I think he does. What do you mean? Nothing. Kramer walked to the port. I see we're still moving in a straight line. He picked up the microphone. Can we instruct the brain orally through this? He blew against the microphone experimentally. Go on, Winter said. Bring the ship around half right, Kramer said. Decrease speed. They waited. Time passed. Gross looked at Kramer. No change. Nothing. Wait. Slowly, The ship was beginning to turn. The turbines missed, reducing their steady beat. The ship was taking up its new course, adjusting itself. Nearby, some space debris rushed past, incinerating in the blasts of the turbine jets. So far, so good, Gross said. They began to breathe more easily. The invisible pilot had taken control smoothly, calmly. The ship was in good hands. Kramer spoke a few more words into the microphone, and they swung again. Now they were moving back the way they had come, toward the moon. Let's see what he does when we enter the moon's pole, Kramer said. He was a good mathematician, the old man. He could handle any kind of problem. The ship veered, turning away from the moon. The great eaten-away globe fell behind them. Gross breathed a sigh of relief. Well, that's that. One more thing. Kramer picked up the microphone. Return to the Moon and land the ship at the first space field, he said into it. Good lord, Winter murmured. Why are you be quiet? Kramer stood, listening. The turbines gasped and roared as the ship swung full around, gaining speed. They were moving back, back toward the moon again. The ship dipped down, heading toward the great globe below. We're we're going a little fast, the pilot said. I don't see how he can put us down at this velocity. The port filled up as the globe swelled rapidly. The pilot hurried toward the board, reaching for the controls. All at once, the ship jerked. The nose lifted and the ship shot out into space, away from the moon, turning at an oblique angle. The men were thrown to the floor by the sudden change in course. They got to their feet again, speechless, staring at each other. The pilot gazed down at the board. It wasn't me. I didn't touch a thing. I didn't even get to it. The ship was gaining speed at each moment. Kramer hesitated. Maybe you better switch it back to manual. The pilot closed the switch. He took hold of the steering controls and moved them experimentally. Nothing, he turned around. Nothing, it doesn't respond. No one spoke. You can see what has happened, Kramer said calmly. The old man won't let go of it now that he has it. I was afraid of this when I saw the wiring changes. Everything in this ship is centrally controlled. Even the cooling system, the hatches, the garbage release, We're helpless. Nonsense, Gross strode to the board. He took hold of the wheel and turned it. The ship continued on its course, moving away from the moon, leaving it behind. Release, Kramer said into the microphone. Let go of the controls. We'll take it back. Release. No good, the pilot said. Nothing. He spun the useless wheel. It's dead. Completely dead. And we're still heading out, Winter said, grinning foolishly. We'll be going through the first-line defense belt in a few minutes. If they don't shoot us down. We better radio back. The pilot clicked the radio to send. I'll contact the main bases, one of the observation stations. Better get the defense belt. At the speed we're going... We'll be into it in a minute. And after that, Kramer said, we'll be in outer space. He's moving us toward outspace velocity. Is this ship equipped with baths? Baths? Gross said. The sleep tanks. For space drive. We may need them if we go much faster. But good God, where are we going? Gross said. Where, where's he taking us? The pilot obtained contact. This is Dwight, on ship, he said. We are entering the defense zone at high velocity. Don't fire on us. Turn back, the impersonal voice came through the speaker. You are not allowed in this defense zone. We can't. We've lost control. Lost control? This is an experimental ship. Gross took the radio. This is Commander Gross, security. We're being carried into outer space. There's nothing we can do. Is there any way that we can be removed from this ship? A hesitation. We have some fast pursuit ships that could pick you up if you wanted to jump. The chances are good they'd find you. Do you have space flares? We do, the pilot said. Let's try it. Abandon ship, Kramer said. If we leave now, we'll never see it again. What else do we do? We're gaining speed all the time. Do you propose we stay here? No. Kramer shook his head. Damn it. There ought to be a better solution. Could you contact him? Winter asked The old man Try to reason with him It's worth a chance Gross said Try it All right Kramer took the microphone He paused a minute Listen Can you hear me? This is Phil Kramer Can you hear me, Professor? Can you hear me? I want you to release the controls There was silence This is Kramer, Professor Can you hear me? Do you remember who I am? Do you understand who this is? Above the control panel, the wall speaker made a sound. A sputtering static. They looked up. Can you hear me, Professor? This is Philip Kramer. I want you to give me the ship back to us. If you can hear me, release the controls. Let go, Professor. Let go. Static. A rushing sound like the wind. They gazed at each other. There was silence for a moment. It's a waste of time, Gross said. No, listen. The sputter came again. Then, mixed with the sputter, almost lost to it, a voice came, toneless, without inflection, a mechanical, lifeless voice from the metal speaker in the wall above their heads. Is it you, Philip? I can't make you out. Darkness, who's there with you? It's me. Kramer! His fingers tightened against the microphone handle. You must release the controls, Professor. We have to get back to Terra. You must! Silence. Then the faint, faltering voice came again, a little stronger than before. Kramer! Everything so strange. I was right, though. Consciousness, result of thinking. Necessary result. Cognito ergo sum. Retain conceptual ability. Can you hear me? Yes, professor. I altered the wiring. Control. I was fairly certain. I wonder if I can do it. Try. Suddenly, the air conditioning snapped into operation. It snapped abruptly off again. Down the corridor, a door slammed. Something thudded. The men stood listening. Sounds came from all sides of them. Switches shutting, opening. The lights blinked off. They were in darkness. The lights came back on. At the same time, the heating coils dimmed and faded. Good God, Winter said. Water poured down on them. The emergency firefighting system. There was a screaming rush of air. One of the escape hatches had slid back, and the air was roaring frantically into outer space. The hatch banged closed again. The ship subsided into silence. The heating coils glowed into life. As suddenly as it had begun, the weird exhibition had ceased. I can do everything. The dry, toneless voice came from the wall speaker. It is all controlled. Kramer, I wish to talk to you. I've been thinking... I haven't seen you in many years. A lot to discuss. You've changed, boy. We have much to discuss. Your wife... The pilot grabbed Kramer's arm. There's a ship standing off our bow. Look. They ran to the port. A slender, pale craft was moving along with them, keeping pace with them. It was signal blinking. A Terran pursuit ship, the pilot said. Let's jump. They'll pick us up. Suits. He ran to a supply cupboard and turned the handle. The door opened and he pulled the suits out onto the floor. Hurry, Gross said. A panic seized them. They dressed frantically, pulling the heavy garments over them. Winter staggered into the escape hatch and stood by it, waiting for the others. They joined him, one by one. Let's go, Gross said. Open the hatch. Winter tugged at the hatch. Help me. They grabbed hold, tugging together. Nothing happened. The hatch refused to budge. Get a crowbar, the pilot said. Hasn't anyone got a blaster? Gross looked frantically around. Damn it, blast it open! Pull, Kramer grated. Pull together. Are you at the hatch? The toneless voice came, drifting and eddying through the corridors of the ship. They looked up, staring around them. I sense something nearby, outside. A ship. You are leaving, all of you. Kramer, are you leaving too? Very unfortunate. I had hoped we could talk. Perhaps at some other time, you might be induced to remain. Open the hatch, Kramer said, staring up at the impersonal walls of the ship. For God's sake, open it. There was silence, an endless pause. Then, very slowly, the hatch slid back. The air screamed out rushing past them into space. One by one, they leaped, one after the other, propelled away by the repulsive material of the suits. A few minutes later, they were being hauled aboard the pursuit ship. As the last one of them was lifted through the port, their own ship pointed itself suddenly upward and shot off at tremendous speed. It disappeared. Kramer removed his helmet, gasping. Two sailors held onto them and began to wrap them in blankets. Gross sipped a mug of coffee, shivering. It's gone, Kramer murmured. I'll have an alarm sent out, Gross said. What's happened to your ship? A sailor asked curiously. Sure took off in a hurry. Who's in it? We'll have to have it destroyed, Gross went on, his face grim. It's got to be destroyed. There's no telling what it, what he has in mind. Gross sat down weakly on a metal bench. That was a close call for us. We're so damn trusting. What could he be planning? Kramer said, half to himself. It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I just listened to the first line by Gross. And the last (laughs) part that I recorded in Gross's voice and the dissimilarities are striking uh well there you go so I mean I really kind of just did okay the the main character Kramer I just did my own voice I didn't want to mess him up since he had the most lines I thought let's just do it in my own voice so I don't have to get crazy gross I you know (laughs) I don't know um I was trying out different voices for him and, you know, he's supposed to be kind of like the brute, you know, he's not smart. So I just went with like a New York accent or something. But what's funny is like in the beginning, uh, it's, it's mostly just New York, like New York cop or something. But (laughs) later on, I start giving him more of a, a Vito Corleone voice. And, um, uh, and, then, and then the only other one I did was like the Western uh, – oh, no, I did a couple more. I did the Western um, voice for the pilot, and then I did the old man feeble voice. I I do think that it helped to differentiate who's talking. Um, that's mostly kind of like what I was thinking. If I read this without voices, are listeners going to be confused as to who's talking? It's like you'll hear the sentence, but then you'll have to wait – for the sentence to be over to know who said it because it'll say, you know, said Kramer or something. So I I don't know. I think this might be a more enjoyable way to listen to a story. Who knows? Uh, I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on it. A, do you think it helps to have voices when being read a story? B, did I do a good job? (laughs) Um, It's funny because like, I wanted to make sure the voices were distinct enough from each other. <laughs> so like, you know, like, I basically just not really thinking about it beforehand, but went through the different um, accents in America. Anyway, um, I had fun doing it. Uh, it wasn't too difficult. There was a, a few times that I kind of thought mm, my voice is a little off, so I'll re-record it, not because I, you know, didn't read it properly, but because I thought my voice was a bit off. Um, so it didn't add, it did not add too much extra work for me to do that. Anyway, enough about me and the recording process, but, uh, how about the story? Here's what I think about the story. I think Phil Dick had a great idea. Well, I wouldn't go that far. He had an idea that interested me. Okay. A brain ship. Sure. Um... I got the feeling toward the midpoint of this story or toward, yeah, let's say the midpoint that he was being paid for a certain number of words, you know, like the magazine editor of what was this thing called? Imagination stories of science and fantasy paid him for, you know, 10,000 words or something. And he basically kind of had to fill in the rest of this story that started really well, but it started started losing its heart, I guess, you know, uh, toward the middle. If I haven't said this about myself, I love good dialogue in a story. For example, what's the best part of The Hobbit? The conversations with Smaug toward the end of the book, of course. He's so devious, and I just love it when authors... Are able to write in a way, write a conversation in a way that resonates with me or that, you know, I don't know, makes me laugh or just uh, some authors can do it, others can't. And it's funny that I'm saying this because I said at the beginning that the other stories I've read by Philip K. Dick, his dialogue has been very strange or unintelligible. But I didn't get that from this story. I liked the dialogue a lot. In fact, my favorite part about this story is when they're deciding on, you know, whose brain, and Kramer's are a little reluctant to ask it of the old man, but uh, Gross is not. He's kind of pushing him along. And you get the feeling that Kramer's going to do something nefarious. Like, like the old man, Professor Thomas, said no on the phone or something. But then Gross goes to, the, goes to his house and forcibly removes him, something like that. And then you're going to find out later on, um, you know, when he becomes conscious in the ship that that's what happened, something like that. So I, I really felt that there was like a lot of tension um, and it kind of got me squirmish, got me smiling when I was reading it. Uh, so I really liked that kind of scene that he set up there. Um, I felt... That the war, you know, the thing with short stories, there's not a lot of time to explain, to give, you know, a big backstory. We don't really know, you know, uh, much about this alien species, the um, the Yukone, the Yukes. So, you know, I, I felt like the war seemed kind of mindless. Uh, but again, I, I can kind of forgive it in a short story. Uh, I read a book, I read a novel recently, which I could not forgive it. Uh, because it's a novel and I should get this explanation, but I read uh, Old Man's War, um, hated it. I absolutely hated the book. Uh, it was like a chore to get through, because when I start a book, I usually finish it regardless of whether I like it or not. Uh, but the, one of the main problems I had was just how mindless the wars were in this in this book. There just didn't there. And I don't maybe, you know, wars don't always have good explanations in real life. Okay, whatever. But I I just didn't like there. There wasn't motive for anything. And I just I kind of felt that way in this short story, too. But whatever. It's a short story. (laughs) One of my favorite lines. I love the idea. This is written in the 50s. I love the idea of (laughs) people smoking on a starship. And uh, I'm going to just read this part again. We're on automatic. The brain. I turned the board over to it. To him, I mean, the old man. The pilot lit a cigarette and puffed nervously. <laughs> Let's keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> just this idea. I mean, I don't even think they did that on Star Trek original series episodes, did they? I haven't seen that many of them, but um, it just seems so funny. But but so natural, probably back in the back in the fifties. <laughs> the when the when johnson becomes conscious again it's so great it's so it's so classic old science fiction uh, a monotone voice uh he says like darkness i can't see anything uh and and then he straight up says like i guess johnson was expecting to become conscious because so you know his idea was well he said cognito ergo sum uh, which is latin for i think therefore i am. So i guess his idea was like well okay so if my brain is still alive and i'm thinking, you know that's what they that's what they want my brain for to think, then i will still be you know alive and i guess i don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure where i'm going with that. But um kind of uh harkened back to 2001 a space odyssey. When did that come out? I think that came out after actually So it may have been influenced by a Phil K. Dick short story. Anyway, there is one thing you may have noticed, you may not have noticed. I didn't finish this story, and I might not, to be honest. Uh, So we're at about a little bit past the halfway point, and I did read the rest of it to myself. And, well, if you want to read the rest of it, you can. Just look it up online. It's in the Gutenberg uh, Library of um public domain works so i'm giving you fair warning if you want to finish it go for it it's a quick read otherwise continue to listen the rest of it was terrible and i mean bad it sucks because if you don't read it you're just gonna to have to take my word for it and you're you might be wondering hey i was enjoying this story why why'd you stop okay you guys seriously you have to take my word for it it gets so bad. So here's what happens: they get carted, they get taken back to the moon on this spaceship that comes and picks them up. And I guess they're staying. I something like he stays there for a night or something in a hotel, and he gets a phone call. Uh, something about his wife is uh, in the hospital, and he's like, "Oh no!" So he tries to get a, a ship as quick as he can back to Earth. There's none available, so he gets put on like a waiting list, and then one comes, and he gets in, and it's like misty, so he doesn't know which one he's getting in, and it turns out that it's, you know, Mr. Spaceship, it's the it's it's Johnson, and um, I think his wife is in there, and then they start jamming off into space, and finally we get to find out what Johnson wanted to talk about the whole time to Kramer, and as it turns out, Johnson wants to take these two people, like Adam and Eve, to a new planet somewhere off in the distance and just start over again without all the wars. And all of that takes exactly how long the first part took. So, you know what? I, I had my fun with the dialogue. I-, I-, I actually had a lot of fun. I'm really glad I did it. But I didn't think it was necessary to finish this story off. So anyway, you know, if I was reading this on Goodreads, which I don't really do short stories, Uh, I probably wouldn't have given it, eh, I would give it maybe a two or a three because I have to take the whole story into account. But I really did enjoy the um, first part of it. And like I said, the uh, nefariousness of gross, Um, even though that didn't really play out how I wanted it to. So there's another kind of knock against it. So there you go, Mr. Spaceship. Let me know what you guys thought about it. Let me know what you thought of the voices I did and different voices in general, if you think that's a good idea for this podcast. That's a wrap. I will see you guys next time.